This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Today's show is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. And right now, Think Again listeners can stream Neil deGrasse Tyson's amazing class, The Inexplicable Universe, and hundreds of other eye-opening classes taught by world-class professors on everything from cooking to the ancient Etruscans for a full month absolutely free. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash think. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash think. Today's episode of Think Again is also sponsored by GoToWebinar. It lets you connect and interact seamlessly with your target audience, and it doesn't suddenly freeze up or drop them or do anything else to embarrass you. It just works so your potential customers can focus on what you're saying and what you can offer them and not on troubleshooting their internet connection. Visit GoToWebinar.com to start a 30-day free trial. Again, that's GoToWebinar.com. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers around. On the Think Again podcast, we leave our comfort zone, surprising our guests and me, your host, with unexpected conversation starters from Big Think's interview archives, ideas we didn't come here prepared to discuss. Today I'm joined by novelist and literary critic Joshua Cohen. His most recent novel is Book of Numbers. On the surface, it's the story of a writer, also named Joshua Cohen, who is hired to ghostwrite the biography of another Joshua Cohen, the founder of a Google-like company. But it's much more than that. It's a meditation on what it means to search in the age of algorithms, and it's written in a style or a bunch of styles unlike anything else I've ever read. Dwight Garner of the New York Times called it one of the best novels written so far this decade. Welcome to Think Again, Joshua. Thank you. So the book is about a year old now, yeah? Or seven years old, but yeah. (laughs) It took six years to write? It took five years to write and then a year to come out and then then a year to live it down. (laughs) I always, like, whenever I hear from any novelist that it takes, you know, four or five years to write a Mm -hmm. novel, I just wonder, like, how do you survive that period? How do you sustain the thread of the thing there alone in your room with the typewriter? Typewriter. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. yeah, right. I mean, it sustains me. It's, it feels like walking around with a secret. I thought about this just a little bit ago because a friend of mine, Karan Mahajan, has a book out right now. It gets into this sort of Delillo ideas of like writers and terrorism. Delillo has that line in Mao too, which I'm going to butcher, but it's essentially saying that you know, terrorists have usurped the heretic power of the writer because they can change the world okay. with, with relatively little materials, you know, mm. cheap materials. I just thought the other day, you know, huh. what, what is that real connection? And it's not the violence or the power to change. It's not the power to jar people. It's not the power to change the course of nations. It's the power that comes from being utterly powerless and keeping a secret mm. for a very long time. But, okay, so what is sustaining about secrecy? Why do you like walking around with a secret? Well, because it's not really a secret, right? I mean, it's right. not a secret in the sense of, you know, there are secrets that, are, that you keep for other people. There are secrets that you keep from other people. And the secrets that you keep from other people tend to be things that embarrass you or that are in some way criminal or prejudicial to, like, the way you've arranged your life. Right. Right. 
And those are interesting secrets because they are, they're not really secrets, they're second selves. Right. What's sustaining about it is that, first of all, it allows me to have many selves, but, but there's also this protection from the world, which will knock you around as it knocks you around. Sure. And there's also the degree of, again, power that you can arrogate to yourself in a world that seemingly grants you very little. And so, yes, it can become delusional, it can become <laughs> egomaniacal, but it also is, it's a redoubt of agency, it's a redoubt of kind of self-determinism. Right. You know, one thing that I noticed about Book of Numbers is that there is this tension maybe between grubby reality, there's a lot of grubby reality, there's a lot of like shabby internet porn and, you know, um, bad office spaces, yeah. <laughs> yeah, bad yeah. moments in yeah. one's professional life, all, sure. that, all that kind of stuff, the, the grind. And this push, which I guess any artist is doing maybe, to escape all of that. There's something about, you know, the way that you use language, the way that you, you know, you're pushing towards some kind of metaphysical other, you know, some sort of... A way to get away from, like, the, the bare facts as presented to you. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I, I don't know. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how that functions in the novel, that tension, or, you know, it may be too big of a question to use. I mean, address. I think there's, I mean, this question, that question can be answered, I think, in a lot of ways. It's a huge issue of our time, the degree to which art has become the backstage of art, the behind the music sort of reality show version of things, which tells everyone, artists, however you want to scare quote that, are just like us. Right, right. right. And it's the ultimate democratization principle because it essentially says we all can be this, you know, in this Warholian sense, right? But we all can be this not because a system will pick us up and make us this, but because we're sort of all collaborating in this system already by right. liking something, by responding to something, by becoming actively engaged with it on social media right. and so on. So th there's this democratization principle in which people think that they are stepping out of themselves into this new echelon of experience by participating in the exposure of the backstage of art. Right. right? But that's not transcendence. You know, what that is is you're allowed on the same grubby stage as anyone, and it's just that the person filming you at this point knows how to cut out all of the ugly things. And it also sort of pulls the rug out from under transcendence. Right. You know, I've noticed lately that in every television show that I watch, People versus O.J. Simpson, whatever, mm -hmm. There is like 10 minutes that they're now adding to the end, mm. which is like behind the scenes of the show you just right. watched. And I am so, I don't want to go there. Yeah, it's, it strips it all away. And what's interesting to me is that, and this might not be universal, but language seems to me to be the only true vehicle of transcendence. Mm. Because there is a sense that it's a common inheritance. Right. You know, it's something that we all need to learn anyway to just survive in this world. Right. Right. It's not like we don't all need to learn how to draw or how to perform a Bach partita, let alone write one, right? right? But the idea that, so this is something we have to do, then this is something that is, is common, and yet it's something that we miss or we ignore constantly. That tells me that it's the correct medium, let's say, for transcendence. Right. Because it is a direct connection through history 
as opposed to a flattened engagement with the present of whatever's kind of passing you by on a screen or on a recording. Right. Because the words can live in your head and on your tongue. And I mean, I, I guess the, the other way that I was thinking about it in terms of the book, right. and, and if you want to get abstract, we'll get abstract <laughs> for a second, the idea of binary code. The idea of transfinite numbering systems where, you know, all information in the world can be represented by two digits or really by one digit in the absence of a digit, right? Right. And that you could put these enormous strings of sequences together and they would represent all the world's knowledge. You know, this is obviously a principle that has been with us from Sanskrit prosody, from Pingala, like in the Western tradition. It's something that Leibniz spends a lot of time talking about. And now we have this idea that this is how our computers essentially run programs that are written in a number of different languages. Right. And it's always been my conviction that the language we use, the human language, is a infinitely rich series of collapsements that makes binary seem truly just binary and makes computer language and the things that even can be done right. in computer language seem ridiculous. And, and what I mean by that is that every word contains in it its entire history. Every language right. that went into it, every person who's ever used it in a certain way. And when you are using a word, you are building it upon the collapsed meaning of usually centuries. And yet we don't pay attention to it. Right. But the moment you do pay attention to it, you have a connection with a tradition that exists nowhere else in any medium that I know. And there's also the active kind of creative act that happens in interpretation where you're interacting with that history mm -hmm. on the one hand, but you're also bringing your, yourself and your present, you know, and whatever Absolutely. Uh, understanding to it, Absolutely. as opposed to machine language, which is essentially like carrying out a set of instructions or storing right. information. Right. And yeah. I, I mean, and I'm not even, I wasn't in any way comparing the two, right. but I was saying to think about language as essentially these units in which all of this other meaning and representation has been crammed. Right. And that what you have to do is sort of put these words together in ways that bring out these sublated meanings. I mean, that to me feels transcendent. Yeah, and in one of the ways that you do that, I think, in Book of Numbers, I mean, you, unlike some writers write in a very like simple, clear and direct style. You obviously are playing with syntax, you're playing with voice, you're jamming words up against each other in ways that are unexpected or surprising. And so I found the act of reading your book challenging and it required a lot of activity on my part. There's this sort of cognitive roadblock that happens at different points where you have to be like, what am I dealing with here? Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how to write any other way. <laughs> and I do think sometimes like very transparent writing, let's say, is, is very valuable. But for me, I just feel like increasingly the duty to be human, by which I mean messy, but, you know, punctiliously messy, <laughs> you know, scrupulously messy. You know, t to leave that thumbprint somewhere that is the mark of an individual who's confused and is trying to think through language as opposed to kind of think over top of language. But even beyond that, it's the idea that um, we fall into these cliches okay. in speech and in writing because we are not punished for them, <laughs> right? The definition of a cliche is something that you're too infrequently punished for. You know? Right. And so there's this idea that I have to forget making a book that I consider good or successful. Right, or right, like right. That, but I just feel like I have to set up these 
moments that jar my own mind out of complacent linguistic habits because I know that complacent linguistic habits create complacent minds. You And your book actually mentions, I think, the origin of the word cliché, which I hadn't thought about before. So it comes from the French, uh, the, the printing presses, where at one point, to save time and be more efficient, they were stringing together common phrases right. to be printed all at once. And the sound of that clacking on the, in the printing press mm-hmm. was cliche, right? Well, some or, people say it was from the sound of it clacking in the matrix when they, when they <laughs> slot the letters to be printed. People say when they actually make the um, molten lead molds and then they're cooling them and it goes in the water. Oh, right, right. You know, right. it's cliche. You know, I, I, they, you know, they go back and forth on yeah. On those. But, but just the idea that uh, this language, when you think about what cliches are, and when you think that they're, they're so derived from newspapers, right. right? I mean, like, a newspaper at this point is antediluvian. It's crazy. It's why we have these phrases still. And it interests me, the development of every sort of new cliche generation, new kind of iteration of cliche, you know, the word iteration already becoming <laughs> Right, cliche, right, right. Right? But this idea that every generation finds something new that poisons the next generation and dulls their mind, that to a degree is like this very interesting generational violence that's done. That's really interesting. That's a kind of infection. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, and for what? Like, because it's comforting? (laughs) I mean, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, if a cliche sticks around long enough, it can become a prayer, which is you know the right. ultimate you know repeated thing, and, and brings in people an enormous amount of comfort. Mostly because if you really pray, and you know the text of prayers, you don't pay attention to what you're saying. Right. You're actually thinking about the thing that you're praying about, and the words are really just the thing that marks the time. So that brings us to the second part of the show, in which um, which is very We're different pray. from the first part, in which we are going to pray cool. to the gods of randomness okay. by um, watching and talking about three different videos that we have not been prepared for. We don't know what they are. You don't even know what they are? I do not. They oh, were picked man. by the producers. Okay. So the first one is by Nikhil Goyal, who is the author of Schools on Trial, How Freedom and Creativity Can Fix Our Educational Malpractice. We can regard these as Rorschach blots or whatever. The conversation can okay. go wherever it goes. Bullying is one of the major issues that is that have always been discussed in, in the education reform conversation and, and the debate. Um, and a lot of people think when they talk about bullying is that if we, we can just solve it by kind of teaching kids to be kinder to one another or implementing these kind of anti-bullying programs where these ruthless punishments if somebody's seen bullying somebody. But a lot of people fail to understand the role of the institution in perpetuating issues such as bullying. And schools have a number of different qualities. And one of them is the anti-democratic governing structure. Uh, If you look at most American high schools, for example, they are gargantuan mammoth institutions. They have thousands upon thousands of kids walking through the hallways every day. When you have such a large student body, uh, you have large class sizes, there's not enough time for students and teachers to have really strong, authentic, and genuine relationships. And students, basically what happens is they get kind of thrown into this sea of are being anonymous. They don't, they don't have any relationships with, their, with fellow peers and, and students at a really rich and authentic level. And so when students feel that they have no power 
or no agency in their school experiences, what often happens is something called cliques arise. So students feel that they have to wield power and get control within themselves and within their ranks. Um, and so you have people at the top of the system who are essentially the, the most popular kids. They And then you have the kids at the bottom. I don't know if I can listen oftentimes to this whole thing. The, no. the I mean, I can, sure. I mean, I can do it. <laughs> I, mean, I, I feel like, it, isn't this guy encouraging me to have agency in my own life? Like in, when you get trapped in institutions in which you feel like you have no control and you don't have a voice, right? you, you have to, um, I don't know. I, we didn't get to that part of what you're supposed to do. You know, this is why I read, man, because I can <laughs> control the speed at which I do things. You know, like, you know, I, I, I can read quick scenes that I want to read quickly, quickly and slow things. I can slow things down. I don't like being victim of time's arrow like that. <laughs> but beyond that, I, you know, I don't, I don't care about schools. I don't care about schools. Really? But yeah, I don't. I don't. That's I really interesting. Don't. Okay. I really, I don't because um, life is horrible. Childhood is probably the worst for me, worst part of life. So it was part of life that was the least enjoyable, but it was the also the part of life that through various hurtful and horrendous things taught me how to survive in the world. Okay. The idea of bullying, sure, bullying exists, but the more adults say it, the more people are going to do it because people right. fucking hate adults saying anything. So, you know, <laughs> right, right. second of all, giving children agency, as anyone who's ever had a child can tell you, is the dumbest fucking thing. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, you know, at a, like, like, sure, some agency, but not how to run your schools and let's take apart mammoth American school systems, and, right? I mean, right, right, I mean right, this right. Is, to me is, yeah. Was your education monolithically horrible? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it was a yeshiva education. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. In New York? Yeah. Uh, New Jersey. Yeah. New Jersey. New Jersey, yeah. All the way yeah. through what grade? Past my bar mitzvah, so I guess 10th grade. Wow. After 9th grade, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it must have maybe taught you something about close reading and arguing. I mean, it taught me every, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it taught me how to deal with psychopaths. It taught me how to deal with Aramaic. I mean, what else do you need? You know, but, but the thing is, is the generation might be too large of an accusation, but it seems to me that there are significant number of people in the world who seem to be younger than me, who seem to want to do everything they can to avoid pain. Okay. And I don't think that that is healthy. Okay. And by healthy, I, I don't mean happy. I mean healthy in terms of being able to react to the world, which is infinitely cruel. Are some forms of pain better than others if we have a choice on how to sort of roughly design our children's experiences? Yeah, you should probably <laughs> lightly discipline kids who punch other kids on the playground, and people who rape children should probably go to jail. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't, you know, but more importantly, the more you allow someone, and this is not for children, the more you allow someone to figure something out for themselves. I don't believe anyone can be taught anything. I don't believe anyone can be shown anything. Interesting. Okay. And, if you, and if you're taught something, if you're shown something, it's either something that is like pretty utilitarian or it's something that's pretty ruined for you or was for me. Okay, you know? but surely like books can teach people things. I mean, but books aren't people. You but know, books are written by people. Right, but you don't really meet the authors that much, you know. And usually, when I meet the authors, it ruins it. I mean, you tell me how. how <laughs> it but no, but seriously, it's it. You know, there are situations in which people point away. This is a road to go down. But right. I, I don't feel like in my own life there's been really any huh. thing I've, I've really come in contact with that was sort of given to me as an interpretation. And, and, and so just looking at something like this and knowing that like a kid would come up in a system in which certain things are already defined for him yeah. or her 
in which this is certain acceptable behavior, this is certain unacceptable behavior. Right. It actually it shapes the certain conscience of the child too directly. So, all right, you just said a little while ago that it's a bad idea to let kids run the show, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And yet this line of reasoning could also lead to like, let's just put all the kids on an island and let them suffer. Kids always run the show to the degree that their adults are too tired or to have other <laughs> things to, to, to watch them. But honestly, I, I mean, I, I can say this, and this, I mean, this is not a subject I've really thought about that much, but it's something I believe in. My experience with conflict with peers at a young age and then how conflicts could be resolved on an adult level right. taught me the fundamentals of the difference between justice and law. You know? Yep. And they're very different. And, you know, with the kids, you wanted to find justice. And if you couldn't, and only if you couldn't find justice, you go to the adults and you beg for law. And it's that tension between the two that was always very interesting to me. Again, if you were forced to be the principal of a school, which would obviously be a nightmare for you, you would be aiming, I would think, for more justice than, than law, right? Or It's the constant friction between justice and law that makes all, I think, social groupings work, right? I mean, all social groupings that I've been in and also really all workplaces that I've been in, it's that friction between what is the official mode of conduct and what is the impelled, innerly impelled mode of conduct. Why is that what makes it work? Like, isn't, aren't those two things supposed to ideally be in alignment no. with each other? Why God. not? I don't mean every individual. We're supposed to enjoy having sex with people we love, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, like, but you, but you okay. know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, it's, right. it's, it's, it's um, no, because <laughs> justice in a lot of time comes from the animal impulse of wounded ego and wounded pride. I see. You know, it comes from getting yours back comes from realigning the universe in your own sense of your own strength and power is justice. So this is like Old Testament justice, Hebrew Bible justice. But that's presented in a very stark way as if that's law. Justice is the little bit more refined version of it, which is to say it's recognizing that these things are not lawful, but it's recognizing that they might be emotionally necessary. Okay. And it's that tension that's always interesting to me. And I think that to deprive a kid of living in that tension, you're really depriving them of like understanding actually how the world works. Okay. Well, we certainly talked a lot about that. that, sure, that. Something I didn't care about and never <laughs> thought about. Cool. All right, cool. Let's, yeah. see what the, let's see what the next one is. <laughs> what is punk? All right, this should be fun. This is Henry Rollins, former frontman of Black Flag, multimedia artist, and it is called What is Punk? You're listening to this show, so I'm assuming that you like to learn new things. Me too. Basically, I wish college lasted forever. With The Great Courses Plus, it literally can. Whether you're trying to brush up on cooking or astrophysics, or like me, the history of ancient civilizations, they've got a lecture series for you. How about Neil deGrasse Tyson, that sly superhero of science? He's got a truly great, great course called The Inexplicable Universe, and right now, Think Again listeners can stream this, along with hundreds of other eye-opening courses for a full month absolutely free. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash think to sign up. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash think. When someone asks you, what's punk? My reply is, if you have to ask, you're never going to know. Apparently, someone asked Louis Armstrong or Lightning Hopkins, 
what jazz or the blues were, respectively. And apparently that's the answer they gave him. So I don't know who said what to whom when, but I think it changes from person to person. So what is punk? Eh, you know, everything from the Velvet Underground to Occupy Wall Street. The kid who throws his spaghetti from the high chair onto his father's face. Hey, he's sticking it to the man as he sees it. So that's punk. So is there punk rock today? Is there a punk? Is there a punk ethic? Absolutely. Where there is young people and vitality, you're going to find punk rock. You'll find it in the youth of Tehran who want a different future. You'll find it in young people in Saudi Arabia who look at Sharia law and go, no. <laughs> and I might have to die to overturn it, but not, I'm not taking this. That to me is punk rock. Questioning anything and everything to me is punk rock. It's also very Jeffersonian. So is it present in our lives today? Absolutely. I find it in these amazing demonstrations happening all over the world that are indeed changing the course of government, ousting people like Hosni Mubarak and changing people's minds. So yeah, punk rock is alive and well. Do you agree that punk is Jeffersonian? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, pretty Jeffersonian. Oh man, I never want to get old. <laughs> I never want to get old. He looks like Oliver North these days. Um, <laughs> I, I love it when the heterodoxy becomes the orthodoxy, you know? Right. It's like punk is resistance, unless you want to submit, unless you want to resist, unless you want to submit, unless you want to do one thing to its utter extreme. It's the baby throwing the spaghetti in the father's face, but it's, is it the father punching the kid in the face or <laughs> picking up his kid by the foot and bashing the baby's brains out against the wall until it looks like spaghetti? I mean, is that punk? You know, I mean, like, yeah. you know, why isn't Mubarak punk? Like, he does what he <laughs> wants. You know, he did what he wanted. Um, well, that's interesting. I guess... The, I just feel like, you know... The, I the, guess the definition yeah. there, I guess Henry would say, if mm -hmm. I may put words in Henry's mouth, mm -hmm. that it's about which side of the power imbalance you're on. Like, if you're the father, you're the autocrat, it's not punk to smash the baby's brains on the wall. Right. The baby is resisting authority. But if you're authority. a weak father and the baby is psychologically mastering you. No, I mean, <laughs> well, I mean well, well, all, all I'm saying is I am, uh, I'm just fucking bored by, <laughs> by the humorlessness of it. You know, because, you know, he's sitting there with his Louis Armstrong. It's, it, w it wasn't Lightning Hop, it was Louis Armstrong, definitely. And... Like I'm said something similar to that, but it was Louis Armstrong said it first. And it's like, but the truth is, is that like Louis Armstrong said that as like a funny line that was half of a fuck you to a journalist. Right. It wasn't earnest. Right. It was just, you know, it was like, you're really going to fucking ask me what you had? Like, fuck you. Like, go, go buy a record. Like, shut up. You know, like. Right, 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 right. right. And, and just the idea that like, we need to unpack this now. <laughs> we need to unpack the levels of irony, sarcasm, sar like sardonic anger, by the way, at probably a white journalist asking Louis Armstrong's question, I want to talk about power imbalance, right? Where he's basically just, you know, fuck you. It's like, that to my mind is, um, it's the same shit as the bullying thing. It's like, let's explain to everyone how everything should work so we understand the power imbalances and we understand when you are transgressing in an approved power balanced way. <laughs> you know, you're, you're operating for a power deficit in an approved punk way and you get your fucking gold star. It's just It so reminds me of something uh, Juno Diaz said on this show. Mm. He said that, I mean, he was talking about public discourse about racism and mm. power imbalances and so forth and saying that the way that we talk about these things or the fact of talking about them mm. essentially 
absolves us of the problem. Totally. You know, it's just kind of like, oh yes, now we've all discussed racism, and now we may go about right. our lives. You know, we've all been baptized in the like progressiveness. Yeah. I mean, but, but my, my, you know, that and that to me is true. Everyone learns the right lines to like, you know, everyone goes to their workplace sensitivity training seminar bullshit, right? Right. But my, my thing is this argument that I just don't, I don't hear enough and maybe I should just talk to myself. <laughs> but it's like just a plea for not explaining things. Just don't unpack shit. Just make the world more complicated. Make it more <laughs> opaque. Let less people inside. Let less people understand. I'm gonna tell, Henry Rollins doesn't, punk is a subculture. It's people who print shit in zines and the only way, at least the only way I would know those people when I was in school, right, is if I fucking could hang out with those people, <laughs> right? And hanging out with those people wasn't a question of like emailing me, it was like you had to like meet them and you had to be cool enough to hang out with them. And if you weren't, you would do something to like make yourself cool enough to hang out with them, right? right? And just the idea that you, welcoming people in is just, no one enjoys it when they're welcomed in. People like when they get in and they have to work to get in. Yeah, I was wondering how that works for you in your two lives as a novelist and a literary critic. Like, as a literary critic, you're explaining shit to people. Like, I think I'm just, I try to make a mess. Okay. I mean, I do. I, I try to. I mean, I've not read one. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. It's, but so it's like I, you I know, for, know, for me, it's like I got to spell the name of the writer right and the name of the book right. But it's like you know, for me, it's like I'm making a piece of writing that when people read. I mean, yes, I, I mean, I want to be true to my opinions. But the idea of explaining is not what a critic does. That's why we have Ivy League humanities graduates who can go work for Cliff's Notes. You know what I'm saying? And just pump out that shit that you can write. Like, right. th there it is, right. you know? But the explanation role, to me, is the most odious, odious role. In a way, it kind of maybe goes back to what we were saying earlier about machine language versus language language. It, mm -hmm. like, simplifies, it two-dimensionalizes sure. reality sure. such that you can't live it. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I also think that it's like you see it in other ways from the computer, internet, and ways of like having access to slang, huh. having access to subcultures right. that you previously have to earn your way into, you know? Things that were actually sort of tribal initiation kind of things where you had to show up at certain concerts, you had to be in certain places, you had to put yourself in peril in a kind of a psychological way at least. Right. Right. And to earn some notion of how people talked. Right. That's the richness of jazz slang, you know, like it's it's a secret language. It's more complicated than anything you could dream up with like the Masons or the Illuminati. It's, right. Right. It, they're drunk and stoned all the time, but like it's this deep communication. And you see the same thing with shop talk. You put in enough time in certain professions and those words just seep into you. And those words live in you in ways that you can't really get from just looking things up. And these subcultures and like, I don't know, things that you can't just walk into, stride into, they still exist all over the place, you know, on the web and, and off the web. But it does feel like we're coming into a time of intense over-explaining, maybe led by Silicon Valley, maybe where apps and everything is designed to kind of walk us through various experiences. I think it's, I think it's triggered by our anxieties because there's just so much to understand now. I mean, I think that there's just so, you know, that the, the explainer actually 
becomes a major gatekeeper arbiter for the flow of it, right? But that person can still exist, right? right? And and sh- should exist alongside a complicating, right? And and I think that one of the most difficult things is to explain to people that there's some things that can't be explained, or there's something that shouldn't be explained, or there's some things that will be explained in time. It's hard for people to hear. It probably won't give you a good job as an explainer, but it's just true. You know, it, it just really is, it's true. I think we, we might leave it there rather than going on to the third video. Okay. Um, the third one's gonna save our lives though. We didn't, it, you know. it might have been, it might right, have been, right, you know, right. but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll never know. But well, it's a good couple. Henry Rollins and that guy. Well, they took us places, right? They took us places. Joshua Cohen, it's been so great having you on Think Again. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate it. And that wraps this week's episode of Think Again. Uh, I wanted to let everybody know that we're going to be doing the show live for the very first time ever as part of NYC PodFest. This is on Saturday, May 21st at 5 p.m. at Cake Shop NYC in Brooklyn. My guest is Sarah Jones, the Tony award-winning playwright. It's gonna be a lot of fun and I really hope that you can make it. Next week, I'm joined by Michael Puitt, the author of The Path, which is a book about ideas in ancient Chinese philosophy. I'll see you then.